This audio is from South Fellowship Church. For more information about South Fellowship, please visit southfellowship.org. Good morning, South Fellowship. I love you, Tim Clibby. All right. It's good to be here. My name is Rob, and my wife and I, like Ryan mentioned, we've been doing church planting uh, north of Montreal, and, and it's a privilege to be here and be a part of South while we're praying about next steps. Uh, this particular text, if you want to turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4, <clears throat> starting at verse 12, 1 Peter 4, verse 12, where we're going to be this morning, this text has been wrestling me for, with me uh, for a number of weeks, and one of the issues is this. And this is kind of a warning about this morning's message, okay? This text is specifically addressed to a church that is going through an intense amount of persecution. We're talking about prison, we're talking about torture, we're even talking about death. And this text is speaking to that kind of a church. And so numerous commentators, as I was reading about this text, warned uh, if we're preaching this text in North America to be careful with it, to not dilute it to not automatically try to apply this text to our lives, the lives of those who are not currently being put in prison or being tortured, being put in prison, so or dying. So on the one hand, we do not want to dilute this text. This is a very intense, difficult text, which means this morning is going to be an intense and difficult morning. But on the other side, we also know that all Scripture is God-breathed. And this also includes First uh, Peter um, if I can take it that verse slightly out of context, this is scripture, and this is profitable for us, and we can learn so much from this text as well this morning, even, if, even as we stay between these two tensions. So we're going to feel this tension. We're going to say it seems like this is kind of for a situation a little more intense than mine, but there's a lot that we're going to glean from this. So five reasons. Why study a text that is primarily written to the church under persecution? Why should we do that here this morning? Five quick reasons. There are more, I'm sure, but here are five. Number one, when we study a text that is talking so overtly about persecution, we realize what it means to be disciples of Christ. And that is, among other things, is that we will suffer. Disciples of Christ suffer. To choose to follow Christ is to choose to suffer. Now, that does not mean, though, on the other hand, is that if I am not suffering for Christ that I'm not a Christian. That's not what it means, but it does mean if I do not suffer for the name of Christ that I'm an exception. Because all throughout church history and all around the world today, generally what it means is if I choose to follow Christ, I'm choosing to suffer for Christ. So I'm an exception. I'm out of that for the moment. We're kind of an anomaly here. Number two, when Christ asks us to do hard things, we can trust him. Have you ever had that little thought in your mind or in your heart that maybe God was calling you to something? And then a couple seconds later, you say, no, he wouldn't call me to that. That's way too hard. Yeah, well, this text kind of proves this wrong because he's asking very difficult things of this particular church. Number three, when part of the body suffers for Christ, the whole body suffers. And so there is one body of Christ that has local um, expressions all around the world. 
And we're part of that body. All of those who put their faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior, the only hope for salvation, the one who came to this earth, who died and rose again, and we turn to him and put our faith in him, we're a part of that body. Now, what do we know about a body? Now, if I accidentally shoot myself in the foot, what is my reaction? My reaction is not, oh boy, look at that foot. That must hurt you. No, I mean, I'm screaming, right? Ah, this hurts! And so as I'm, we are part of the body of Christ, even if this part isn't suffering in the same way, we're part of it. That's part of our suffering at the same time. Number four, we learn counterintuitively that suffering for Christ can benefit us. And Peter, that's he's, what he's pushing in this text. That suffering can bring about some amazing benefits, specifically suffering for the name of Christ. And number five, we learn that suffering is not usually a result of personal failure. We do not serve a vindictive God who's up in heaven with lightning bolts and he's just waiting for us to step out of line so he can shoot us. That's, that's not the God that we serve. We serve a God who loves us and who entered into our suffering. And he walked on this earth and he was, he suffered in multiple ways and eventually he was tortured and he was crucified for us and he understands us and he loves us. He's a good father. Now, are there times in our life when he may bring suffering into our lives so that we turn away from some kind of destructive tendency? Yeah, possibly. But this morning, we're not talking about that. And usually, that's not what we're talking about when we talk about suffering. The people that we're going to talk about this morning did nothing wrong. There was no failure. There was no sin involved in their lives. And yet, they are suffering. This is an important distinction to understand. So by now, um, you know, we're, we've prayed for France this morning. Um, apparently, there were six simultaneously, simultaneous terrorist attacks. 129 were killed, more than 300 injured, and 80 of which are still in critical condition. <clears throat> this, is, this is horrific. This is almost unimaginable. I can't imagine perpetrating something like this in the kind of mind, the kind of evil it takes. And you know that our desire as a family is to travel to France in the next few weeks and to pray about possibly moving there long term. So you can imagine the kinds of discussions we're having with my 11-year-old and my 9-year-old right now about terrorism, about death, about evil in the world. We prayed for France that God would comfort the French and that somehow, like we prayed this morning, that millions of the French would turn to Jesus for the first time. If we do not have an adequate theology of suffering, when we are confronted with these types of situations, what will happen to our faith? When these types of circumstances that are a daily reality for so many around the world touch us, we almost automatically go to the question, where was God in that? Is he good? Does he even care? We tend to think that if God is good, then he's only going to give us good things. And that's simply not the reality for so many people all around the world. So take, for example, this text from a Quebecer newspaper. In, uh, this is right after the earthquake in Haiti a few years ago, a letter to the editor. Uh, and uh, 
just a regular person in Quebec expressing their thoughts about God and Haiti. Um, for those of you who can read French, feel free to read the article. For those of you who are still working on it, I'll read an English translation. Okay. Leaving Mass, a Quebecer woman affirmed that God was with Haiti and we should also stand with her. Remember, there were, I think, 200-something thousand victims. It was horrific. Did I hear that correctly? Since the earthquake, I have not seen any God come to Haiti's aid. Not Buddha, not Vishnu, not Yahweh, not Allah, not God the Father. None have shown up in Haiti. All that I have seen is the international community, regardless of their belief systems, that has mobilized to come and help these people so cruelly impacted. To my knowledge, neither the United States or NASA could have stopped the earthquake. Only one could have stopped it, God himself, and he did not. So how can we pretend that God stands with the Haitian people? The saddest part is that this believing nation, even after being so cruelly smacked by their own God, continue to pray to him. We really don't know why. Norman Rousseau. I think many Americans share the same opinion. And I'm willing to bet most of us in this room have struggled with the same question. Just like an inadequate foundation will crumble when the earthquake comes, an inadequate theology of suffering will crumble when the weight of reality presses in. But on the contrary, God's word presses into reality. God's word is not superficial. It was not primarily written to people who live in places like North America. The Bible was primarily written to encourage and to instruct God's people who are living through hell on earth. They're living through famine, sickness, prison, torture, persecution. These are the kinds of people that large chunks of the Bible was written to. And when the Bible presses into us, it begins to build the kind of foundation that does not crumble under the weight of reality. Now, this does not take away suffering, but what it means is instead of drowning in grief, drowning in sorrow, God allows us to see through that suffering. Rather than being surprised by suffering, we swim through it with hope. Up to this point, we've been talking about suffering, the kind of suffering that happens to us, that just hits us, that we have no choice. But there's another kind of suffering. There's the kind of suffering that we choose to step into. Um, now, you ask the question, why would anyone ever choose to step into suffering? Well, here's an example. We, we celebrated Veterans Day just last week. How many of our veterans chose, made the conscious decision to step into a situation where they would risk their lives and possibly suffer horrifically for the good of their country, for the good of us, for our security and for our freedom? And we are grateful for it, that they chose to risk that kind of suffering for us. Are we not grateful? Amen. Amen. Risk versus reward, right? When the reward is great enough, I'll take the risk. When the risk is, is great and the reward is not, then I, I'm not going to take the risk. And so here's a question that Aaron and I were, 
we're talking through this last week. Um, how big of a reward would I require to, lose, to risk losing each of the following? My weekend plans. My guess would be not a great reward, unless you're getting married this weekend. <laughs> Some other big event. How about a Broncos win? If you're the Broncos coach and you know that one of your players is involved in something nefarious, would you risk a win by, by benching him? What would it take? How about my security? How about my job? I bet there are a number of you in this room right now who there are times in your lives when you've taken a stand at work and as a result of that stand, because you knew you had to stand for something related to your integrity, relating to something, and as a result of that, you knew you were standing on thin ice, like this thing could go any direction. I might lose it, but I have to stand. How about uh, my house, my health, my relationships, my reputation, my marriage, my life? What would it take for me to be willing to risk my life? I can think of a number of situations. I can think of my, my family was being threatened. I, I'd step up for sure. Somebody else that I loved Somebody else I knew that their life was in danger and somehow I knew that I might be able to make a difference? Absolutely. And I know a lot of you would do the same thing. When the value is high enough, somebody else's life was on the line, we're willing to step up as well. How about my child's life? I'm not talking about something macabre where we don't care about it. We love our children and we do everything for them. But one of my, one of my best friends, um, he... Uh, and his wife and his family are living in a particular country where uh, there was a situation where they had to stand up against injustice to save a whole bunch of children. And as a result of that, there were multiple death threats and people who wanted to kill he and his wife and their children. And he knew that if he stood up, that that was what would happen. And he stood up anyway. And he knew that he was putting his entire family at risk. And we here, you know, they, they eventually, they had to flee the country. It was a bad scenario. But we here, we also, we celebrate stories like this throughout the history even of our country. People who stood up against injustice. It's hard. Now, the reward that God offers for each of these is himself. And there are followers of Christ all around the world who have said, this is so worth it that they have risked and then gave up everything on this list for Christ. And they chose that. What kind of reward does suffering offer a follower of Christ? Is there a way to go through suffering as a follower of Christ that I can say, this is worth it. This church is a church connected to people all around the world, people in Vietnam, people in China, people in Algeria, people all, I don't know all the places, I know there are a ton. And these are places where it is difficult to follow Christ. And these people in these other countries and other contexts, when we talk about suffering for Christ, they know what it means at a heart level in a way I don't understand, and most of us here we don't understand. But it is not surprising. And it shouldn't be surprising. All we have to do is read Jesus. 
Just open up our Bible and realize that following Jesus means suffering. Look at this, Luke 6, 27 to 28. But I tell you, Jesus says, you who hear me, love your enemies. Do, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. So there we're going to, I'm going to have enemies who hate me and curse me and who mistreat me. Welcome to following Jesus. Yeah, not pulling any punches Luke 18, 29 to 30, but no one who has left home or wife or brothers or parents or, or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will have failed to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. It will be worth it. It will be worth it. Um, just uh, But before, Luke 21, but before all this, they will lay hands on you and persecute you, send you to prison, but this will result in your being witnesses to them. So even suffering is part of God's plan to actually proclaim the name of his son, as counterintuitive as that sounds. Luke 21, but make up your mind, he's preparing his disciples, make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves, for I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. What is, Jesus is preparing his disciples, those who would follow him for something very difficult. We see it in Acts 1.8, Jesus says again, this is again Luke, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses. So power is the word dynamis in Greek. We have the word dynamite from that, imagine that. And the word witnesses is the word martis in Greek. What word do we get from that? Imagine following Christ consistently, there was a consistent negative reaction to the point of suffering and death, all throughout the beginning of the church to the point that the word for witness became a synonym for martyr. And today we use the word martyr, which is the Greek word just to proclaim something, which talking about Christ, proclaiming Christ. And now, okay, so Jesus is preparing them He's saying this, and now look, let's look at how it played out. Acts 4.13, uh, before the government and the magistrates, they had the Holy Spirit, they were speaking, they were preaching boldly, and when they saw, the, the, the leaders, the, the uh, political and religious leaders saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. And then they, they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. So what do they do? And further threats, they let them go. And then they pray. The apostles come together and they pray. And they said, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. What are they most concerned with? God, don't close our mouths. Don't let us close our mouths. Let us keep our mouths open, proclaiming your word that you rose again. Threats or no threats, that doesn't matter. After they prayed, they were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Then they arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. Again, right? Verse 25, then, someone, then an angel let them out of jail. Did they go hiding? No. Then someone, someone came and said, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. They get out of jail and they go to the most conspicuous place in the entire city and begin opening their mouth and proclaiming Christ again. Verse 29, 
again in front of the magistrates and the government officials. And Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than men. So they called the apostles in and had them flogged, had them whipped. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they were whipped. Their backs were bloodied. They're walking out with bloody, dripping backs, all of them, with the command, don't do this again or it'll get worse. And what is their reaction? The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace. And they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. What does that, what does suffering have to do with not proclaiming Christ? And so here we are in 1 Peter 4.12. Peter, who had been taught by Christ, Peter was one of the ones who was flogged. He walked out rejoicing, and now he's riding to a church who's going through a similar thing, and he says, I understand. I know what you're going through. I've been there. I was there. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you were suffering as though something strange were happening to you. But just like I rejoiced in Acts chapter 5, walking out with a bloody back, you can rejoice too. Here Luke, in this text, he's responding to a fundamental question. And this question is, why should I do what is good and right, living a Christ-centered life publicly, proclaiming the name of Christ, being a good citizen, being a, a man and woman of integrity at my job, flourishing marriage, why should I do this if I'm going to suffer for it? Why? Because if all I get is suffering, then I might not go with Jesus. This is the question, and I think it's a question that we can ask as well. And Peter responds. He says there are three things. Suffering is not the end of the story. There are three benefits, three rewards, three good things that suffering does to us, for us, in us, and those around us in this text that are good. And what it, what it means is that the risk of suffering, yes, it's there, but the reward is through the roof. And so it's worth it. So the first thing that we see is that suffering for Christ, number one, it orients me toward Christ's return. Let's look at verse, 1 Peter 4, verses 12 and 13. Dear friends, this is what he says, do not be surprised at the fire ordeal that has come on you today. Can you imagine Peter's reaction? He's recalling all of the things he's gone through. That has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. See, when I am not suffering for Christ, often in my life, and we, I think, Christians and churches that are not suffering for Christ, we tend to lower our eyes and just see around us right here and start seeing the stresses of life, anxiety, pressure, schedule, running, trying to make things happen, financial pressures, and we just kind of start to forget that there's a greater reality. 
And when I suffer for Christ, what it happens is it lifts my eyes up and I see that, wait a second, I am a part of something greater. One day, Jesus is coming back and I am a part of that right now. That day is going to be an awesome day and that gives me joy right now here where I am. Amen. That's going to be an awesome day. I played soccer when I was in college in daily doubles, in a training camp, those kinds of things. Those were, man, that hurt. I remember after the second or third day, I mean, and I was playing sports and everything at that point in time a lot more than I am now. And I remember second or third day of training camp, at the end of the day, after I'd taken a shower and I was standing looking down at my bed and thinking about how painful it was going to be to move my muscles <laughs> to get down into bed because, man, every muscle in my body was on fire. But you know what, though? I knew as I was part of a team and this was all about what was coming, that we were going to win some games. I was part of something and I was looking forward and I knew that even if that hurt, this hurts right now, right now, what's coming, coming down the pike is exciting. And we, all of those who have put their faith in Christ, we've been invited into this, this thing. And we, we know that what's coming is Christ is coming back. Everything is going to become new one day. We're a part of it right now, and it's working right now, and we can be a part of that and be overjoyed today. That's exciting. So suffering for Christ orients me toward Christ's return. Number two, suffering for Christ transforms insults into blessing. Let's look at verse 14. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. You're not insulted. You're not blessed because you're insulted. Okay, you, you're blessed because it says something about me when I suffer for Christ. And that means that there's something about me that, wow, I, I, am, I have the spirit of glory and of God on me. And to realize that glory throughout Scripture. Now, we often, when I think of glory, when I, at least in my mind, I, I can automatically think of something bright and shiny. But throughout Scripture, glory, that which is glorious, is that which is heaviest, that which has the most significance, that which has the greatest value, that which is unmovable. That is what is glorious, this heavy, weighty thing. So imagine a scale, and on the one side you have a feather, on the other side you have a bowling ball. What is more glorious? Which is most glorious? Well, the bowling ball. Imagine this remote right here versus Pike's Peak. Which is most glorious? I mean, do we have to answer the question? Imagine taking Pike's Peak and throwing it into the South Platte River. What happens to the river? It's changed forever, right? That's what happened when Jesus came to this earth and he died on this cross and he rose again. It was his glory slamming into human history and changing it for all of history. And what he's saying is that when I'm insulted for Christ, it points to the fact that I have that weighty, significant, glorious spirit on me as well. And I 
am blessed. You're insulting me because of the name of Christ? The waves of insults for Christ are washing up over me. Waves only wash up on that which opposes them. And that must mean that the weightiest spirit is up on me, sustaining me. And the currents of this world are flowing around me. Wow. That is a blessing. And the third Suffering for Christ orients me towards Christ's return. It transforms insults into blessing as I realize that the spirit of glory is on me. And number three, suffering for Christ is a means to be a witness for Christ. Let's look at verse 15. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. So let's be clear. You know, if you stole a car and you're in prison for that, that's not what we're talking about. Okay? <laughs> Um, however, this is what we're talking about. If you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear his name. You're part of the family. You're part of his kingdom. And others around me are going to see Christ through that. I have a friend that he travels to Asia often. And a couple of years ago, we were talking about this subject, and he had just gotten back, and he told me a story that he had just met the principal characters in this story uh, in Asia. And in this particular story, there was a young man, he's about 21, uh, we'll call him B, and he... Uh, so B, he attended a Christian school at 21 years of age. In this particular part of Asia, there was a significant amount of terrorist activity. And one day, uh, what happened was that the local police came to the Christian school uh, that B was attending and had the entire student body come together and asked who from the student body was from the particular region where the terrorists were generally from. Uh, and then three people raised their hands, and one of them was B. And so the police took B down to the police station, and uh, their goal was to use B as an example to show the public that they were doing something about terrorism in their area. And so they told B to confess that he was a terrorist. And B said, well, I, I can't because I'm not a terrorist. And they said, also, we want you to renounce your faith in Jesus and become a Hindu like the rest of us here. And B's response was, well, I can't do that either because Jesus actually, he died, he was tortured and crucified for me to save me. I can't turn my back on Jesus. I can't do that. And so the interrogation turned into torture. Day after day after day after day, after week after week after month after month, until after about six months of be refusing to respond the way they wanted to, um, they decided to change their tact. And so what they did is they brought in a Hindu Brahmin. And the Hindu Brahmin, his goal was to, they, they asked him to take care of B and to convince him to become a Hindu. And so the Brahmin went in every day, brought him food, took care of him, and tried to converse with him and convince him to become a Hindu. This happened day after day, after week after week. And after several weeks of this, the Brahmin walked out and he said, I can't do this anymore, to the police. And the police said, well, why not? Well, because I've become a Christian. <laughs> <laughs> and so the police were furious and so they take B and they throw him into the local prison 
And he's there in the prison week after week and month after month and year after year. And he's in prison for a total of three years until finally they kicked him out of prison. You know why? Because he had started multiple churches in prison and the prison guards did not want the entire prison population to become Christians. And my friend, he met with him, he met with people at the school, he met with people in the area, and he came back and said, Rob, this is incredible what happened and how God uses suffering for Christ to lift up and magnify Christ's name. How many people met Jesus Christ through being suffering that would not have if he hadn't suffered? As horrible as suffering is. And then our text gets into a couple of verses here, verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? And what this, these two verses are basically saying is, you know what, if God is going to allow this kind of suffering to come upon those who follow him, imagine the day when God comes to exact vengeance and justice. What it's going to look like for those who have rejected God and persecuted those who follow Christ. That's going to be a bad day. Turn with me to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, verse 19, and Paul is talking about a similar subject, and he says to persecuted believers, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. This, this is anti... We're Americans, right? We like to defend ourselves. We do. And there are a lot of contexts when that's absolutely appropriate. But here the Apostle Paul is telling followers of Christ to go against what our natural response would be. And he says here, on the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. And in doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So, yes, there's a room for law enforcement and the legal system and all those things. Absolutely, we're for those, the police. But on a fundamental level, you know how... Um, Missions movements were begun in Ireland and England and Germany throughout the history of Christianity and Scandinavia and China. It wasn't by Christians exacting revenge. It was by them loving their enemies. And one day there will be justice. God is a just God. There will be, and we can trust him with that. We don't have to take that into our own hands. 
And so let's come back to that warning at the beginning about this particular text, that this text is specifically to a church that is being imprisoned, being tortured, members are dying, I mean, going through horrific persecution. So now us here, we're looking at, this is why they say it's worth it, because it orients me towards Christ's return. I realize that I'm blessed, I'm witnessing through this. I'm seeing people transformed by Jesus. Well, then how can us, those of us here, stand with our brothers and sisters all around the world who are suffering? How do we do that? How do we stand with them? And there are multiple ways, but one of them, uh, there's a fellow by the name of Nick Ripkin. He and his wife, they were involved in Somalia in the 1990s, and they came out of Somalia broken. And they eventually, they spent the next couple of decades traveling to, I think, about 72 different countries, meeting with specifically um, followers of Jesus who are persecuted and flourishing to learn how can they do that. And then he speaks to this, how we here can stand with them. I recommend for everybody to actually buy the book and go to the the podcast here, The Insanity of God, and listen to it. Go from the oldest ones and all the way up, uh, and uh, you will grieve and be hopeful and joyful all the way through it. Um, But here's what he has to say, Nick Ripkin, about this. First of all, there are two ways to stop persecution if we want to stop it. The second way is to close my mouth. To believe the lie that my relationship with Jesus is private. Because all around the world even in most of the most intense, difficult countries in the world. The only thing that followers of Christ have to do to stop persecution is to stop sharing Christ publicly. That's the number two way to stop persecution. And Nick Ripkin, I'm going to quote him, he says, standing with believers in persecution is at the point of witness. When I share Jesus, either in America or anywhere around the world, that is a dagger in the heart of Satan because that is the number one thing Satan does not want. He does not want people to have access to Jesus. And so, when they, believers under persecution, when they are kicked out of their families, they lose their job, they have their kids taken from them, they live under threats, they live under house arrest, that is the overt stuff that makes the most publicity. And yet they want us to know that this is happening to them because they refused to keep Jesus to themselves. I was sharing one of my heart verses with them from Matthew, where it talks about loving those who persecute you and hate you and spit upon you, that that was the height of spirituality. And the Chinese believers laughed at me. And so I said, okay, how, uh, what did I say now? They said, you don't understand that scripture at all. You think that it's some kind of mystical spirituality. The number one way to stop the persecution is to win your persecutor to Christ. Those are some of the most practical verses in all of the Bible. Nick Ripkin continues. He says, in the year 2000, I'm overseas and I'm able to get onto the internet and read the presidential address to the Southern Baptist Convention. James Merritt is preaching. Now, I don't know where he gets his information, but James Merritt said, 90% of Southern Baptists, 9 out of 10, will never share Jesus with another person. 
That is what is killing believers in persecution. They're saying, you are giving up in freedom what we would never give up in persecution. That is our witness, our martis, to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But here is the mistake you are making. You think that witness is tied to political freedom. And that is so biblically incorrect. We're talking about, this is a series on being exiles in our own country, right? First Peter. I am as free to share Jesus in Saudi Arabia today as I am in Kentucky. I am as free to share Jesus in Afghanistan as I am in Ohio. No one can stop me from getting off the airplane and witnessing to this person and this person and this person. We're just as free as the apostles who walked out with bloody backs and immediately began to share Jesus. It's not about freedom, though. It's about courage and obedience. It's about being obedient to share the gospel with everyone and the courage to suffer the exercising of your freedom. Politics, countries, presidents have nothing to do with this. God has said, you are free, and you are to share the gospel with everyone. And when we are obedient and exercise our freedom, then do we have the courage to suffer the consequences? That is what the believers in persecution want to know. Identifying with those in persecution today is witnessing to those who do not know Christ. So as our brothers and sisters all around the world are suffering horribly because they're opening their mouths to proclaim the risen Christ. What they want to know is that us here, we are opening our mouths to proclaim the same Christ too. And so we're free. We are free. We're just as free as the apostles were. We're free to do good. We're free to be great citizens. We're free to be great employees. We're free to have flourishing marriages. And we're free to be courageous witnesses for Christ. Oh, Father, give us joy. Let us rejoice the same way Peter did. The same way Peter encouraged the church in Asia Minor to rejoice in verse 12. Thank you for the rewards that we have and that we're looking forward to. And let us proclaim Christ with freedom, courage, and boldness this week. Amen. This audio is from South Fellowship Church. Feel free to make copies of this message, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. For more information about South Fellowship, please visit us at southfellowship.org.